Now, Jesus, I pray as we go to your word that you would help us understand it. As we finish Ecclesiastes this morning, that, you'd, that we help us see the conclusion on things, the, the, the meaning in this life that you give us, even revealing part of that hundreds of years before you showed up on earth. Thank you for this time. I pray that our worship now would look like not just singing, not just that, that sort of part, but, but of, of receiving your word and understanding it and doing what it says. pray you give me the words you would have me to say and keep me from the ones you don't want me to. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm one of those people that I, I cringe Sometimes when I go by churches and I read their signs, do you ever, are you one of those people that you cringe sometimes when you see what churches are saying? And I, I think I, so. I picked some signs this morning, and I think all of these are well intentioned. I, I think there's good intentions behind them. They're trying to say something spiritual, something encouraging, something good for the general public, unsaved people to hear. But to me, it's like trying to find the right words for the sign, I think, can be a little bit hard. Like you're striving to say something, but maybe you fall a little bit short. So this sign is, I don't know why some people change churches. What difference does it make which one you stay home from? That's a little sarcastic, you know? I mean, yeah, you, you should be in church, yes, but I don't know if I would say that. Let's do the next one. Do you know what hell is? Come here, our preacher. Somebody wasn't thinking. Somebody, God will never leave you for the Jets. Are, are we making the connections here? A little Brett Favre humor there. All right. That's in Wapon. Scott LaBouille, this is for you. God shows no favoritism, but our sign guy does. Go Cubs. Yeah. Yep, there you go. Why didn't Noah swat the two mosquitoes? Because that's what we all want to know when we go to church. Seriously. Seriously. All right. Uh, will I have a mustache in heaven? Anybody have an answer? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the passage you're going to go to to answer that. New bodies, are they all going to be hairy? I don't know. I don't know. All right. Revival canceled due to death. Yeah. Again, I get what they mean, but maybe not, maybe not the right way to say it. Having trouble sleeping? We have sermons. <laughs> Come hear one. <laughs> we welcome the good, the bad, and the ugly. A little Clint Eastwood humor going on there. You've got you to appreciate that. got to appreciate that. Don't let worries kill you. Let the church help. Yeah. Christmas, easier to spell than Hanukkah. Like, so someone thought, you know, Christmas is better than Hanukkah, and let's prove it. Yeah, right, okay. Um, would you turn to the last chapter in Ecclesiastes? Now you're ready to hear what Solomon has to say, I think. If we had a sign in the front of our church, I think I'd just put Bible verses on it. You know, because there's no way you're going to know if that's really going to connect with somebody, that, that, 
that pithy saying that you picked out or that you wrote or someone's going to misinterpret it or have a laughing stock and throw it up on their Sunday sermon laugh time, okay? You know, you just, you just don't know. Uh, so we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is the conclusion. This is the last one. Uh, if you're just joining us here for the first time, uh, you missed it. I'm sorry. But it's going to end well, and so it, this will be good. It'll be good. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We are in verse 9. All right. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. Now let's pause for a second right there. Now, uh, nowhere in Ecclesiastes does it actually say that I, Solomon, wrote this book. But he says he was a king. He says he ruled in Jerusalem. He says he had great wisdom. He said he had great riches. And so we're kind of putting the pieces together. And you say, yeah, sounds like Solomon, you know. And Solomon was a writer of Proverbs. So, you know, it makes sense that it be him. Although, technically speaking, you could argue that, that, the, that the teacher here is anonymous. Or maybe Solomon was just known by the, the, the name teacher. And so maybe they just knew that's who it referred to. We don't know for sure. So I, I always say Solomon, but just so you know, there is some anonymity there for us today, at least, trying to figure this out. But he says here, and this is, a, this is an interesting way to say things. You know, he says, you know, the teacher's wise, and he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and said in order many proverbs. So, so he's thinking deeply about how to say the things he's saying. Verse 10, he searched out to find just the right words. Some of your translations might say, the delightful words. So, so Solomon is saying, I, I worked really hard to put this book together. I carefully crafted the words that you're reading in Ecclesiastes to find the right words, to find beautiful words. And so we've looked at some of those passages like there's a time for everything under heaven, you know, a time to be born, a time to die, time for war, time for peace. Beautiful poetry. I mean, unlike most of the poetry you'd read. It's just amazing. Last, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about how remember God in the days of your youth before you get old. That's the way I would say it, before you get old. But Solomon's like, no, I'm not going to say it like that. I'm going to say before the glass pitcher breaks and before this happens and this happens, before the, the, the teeth chatter. And he uses all this poetic language. It's beautiful words to say something that is wise and profound. So he's saying, I'm trying really, really hard to give you delightful words of truth. This, friends, is a claim that Ecclesiastes is the inspired word of God. These are words of truth. He says what he wrote in verse 10 was upright and it's true. Now, not everybody shares the opinion that Ecclesiastes should be taken seriously in all that it says. In fact, I've told people, I'm preaching through Ecclesiastes, and sometimes they say, oh, really, that book, really? That's kind of negative, that's kind of pessimistic. Can we throw up a quote by the uh, pastor that I have there? <clears throat> this is uh, Pastor Ray Stedman, who I believe has since gone on to be with the Lord, uh, but a well-known Bible teacher and expositor, I think great in many ways. But this is what he says about Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes, or the preacher, is unique in Scripture. 
There's no other book like it. Because it's the only book in the Bible that reflects a human rather than a divine point of view. This book is filled with error. And yet it's wholly inspired. This may confuse some people because many feel that inspiration is a guarantee of truth. This is not necessarily so. Inspiration merely guarantees accuracy from a particular point of view. If it's God's point of view, it's true. If it's man's point of view, it may be true and it may not. If it's the devil's point of view, it may or may not be true as well because the devil's ultimate end, of course, is evil. Inspiration guarantees an accurate reflection of these various points of view. Now, here's what Ray Stedman is saying there. I agree with him on one hand that you're going to read, if you open your Bible and you're reading it, you're going to read people saying things and what they say may or may not be true. Are you going to trust everything that Pontius Pilate says? (laughs) Probably not. Roman ruler, right? I mean, stuff that he says may or may not be true. But the Bible accurately records what he actually said. So it's a true historical account, even though you can't trust what the guy says. The Bible's going to tell you things the devil says. But should you take that to the bank and say, this is truth, I'm going to live by it? No. In fact, you might as well kind of count on the fact that the devil's lying to you and the Bible's accurately recording his lies. So it's inspired. Now what Ray Stedman's trying to do is he's trying to say, Ecclesiastes is also full of a man-centered view. This is a guy thinking about life and writing stuff down, whether it's Solomon or an anonymous author, and you can't trust it because it's a human point of view. And to that I say, I politely and respectfully disagree. In fact, I strongly disagree. Because this verse right here says, the teacher searched to find the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. Are you going to argue that it's only true from a certain perspective? Are you going to argue that you shouldn't heed these words? Because if you do, in just a minute, we're going to look at him saying, you better heed these words. You better heed them all. And so I'm not saying that Ecclesiastes doesn't have difficult words. I think you could probably uh, work out some of our trouble with Ecclesiastes if you do what we've tried to do all summer long and say, the word vanity or meaningless is the word hebel. It doesn't always mean meaningless. Hebel can mean unfair. It can mean uh, without profit, no ultimate value. And so what Solomon's trying to do is he's trying to say, I'm looking at life and I'm trying to see, is there anything on earth that will give you meaning apart from God? And his answer is, everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. There is no meaning in life apart from God. This is the truth. So I know there's difficult words here. I know that some of it almost sounds pessimistic, like better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Or God has made everything beautiful in its time. Beautiful, we we would translate, we would interpret to be poetic language to mean everything is appropriate. What is going to happen is going to happen and God's in control of it. That can be a hard word for some people. But it's true. And so we trust our good God even when difficult things are going on in our life as we've sung about this morning. And I think Ecclesiastes is so good for the church today. This is my personal take. So so take it however you want. Because some of us, not all of us, but some of us have a very 
smiley spirituality. You know what I mean? Like, you go to church and there's a huge smile on your face and it's like that every week. And you could be on death's door and you'd still have a huge smile. And, and on the one hand, that could be joy of the Lord. On the other hand, you might just be acting like everything's okay when it's not. Joy of the Lord is great. And that ought to bring a smile to your face every day. But sometimes we go to church as if we've got it all together. And sometimes we put on a front to people and we act like life is good. My marriage is fine. My kids are beautiful angels. And, and I never have an argument with my spouse. And everything is wonderful. My job is great. My boss is the kindest person I've ever worked for. And, and we know deep down that that's not true. But we think being a Christian means we have to smile and act like it is true. And Ecclesiastes says, no, that's not really the way life is. Sometimes you can be extremely righteous and life just stinks. And you can say, God, aren't you going to bless me for all the good that I've done? And God says, I am blessing you, but not in the way that maybe you want. Maybe not in the material sort of way. Maybe not in a physical way. Maybe it's a spiritual blessing I'm giving you to withstand all that you're going through. You say, no, God, that's not what I want. You're supposed to... And Ecclesiastes just tells it like it is. And I've heard many of you say that throughout the summer. It was so good to look at a book that is so realistic about life. And it's true. Now, let's keep going. By the way, I hope that's an encouragement for some of you to be real about your faith about your life in front of other people. Because a lot of people look at the church and, and some of them just think we're hypocrites because we act like everything's fine, but we know it's not. Let's be real about it. Let's stop faking it. If life stinks, I mean, I know how it is on Sunday morning when someone goes up to you and says, how's it going? You say, fine. Or what you really want to say is, do you really want to know what's going on with me? Did you, did you, do you have half an hour, 45 minutes, I could tell you what's going on? And hopefully the person would say, yes, I'd love to hear, brother, what's going on in your life. Hopefully that's the church we can become. Coffee hour might take more than an hour, but it would be a beautiful thing that would honor Christ if we could get real. Okay, having said that, having said that, and disagreeing with Ray Stedman, as well-meaning as he is, this is the Word of God. This is God's perspective. Solomon searched for the right words to say it. Here we go. Uh, Verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Okay, so Solomon now is saying, here's how you need to treat Ecclesiastes and the Bible in general. Here's how you come to the Bible. You treat it like a goad. Kids, your Bible's a goad. Understand what I mean? I didn't think so. Okay, hold on, hold on. All right. Let's see. Okay, all right. This is my my shepherd staff that I got when I came here, but um, I'm going to use it for illustration purposes. Um, a goad is a staff with a sharp, pointy end on it, and so you're driving oxen, you're trying to make them do what you want to do, cattle, and so you're you're poking the animal to go. And it's, remember, kids, it's got a sharp end. This this is my stick, you know, so it's like you know, blunt on the end, but, but a goad, you could poke an animal, 
keep them on the right track, and they could resist if they wanted. They could. Remember, remember when God knocked Saul off of his animal onto the ground, and Jesus says it's hard to kick against the goads? You ever read that verse? Saul, who becomes Paul in the New Testament, hard to kick against the goads. That's one of those ones where if you don't look it up, you'll have no idea what he's talking about. But if you know what a goad is, and it's, and it's a sharp thing poking into an animal a little bit, and if you're like trying to resist it, all you're doing is driving that thing into your flesh. That's what you're doing. You're, you're kicking against the goads, and it's hurting you. It's bad for you. Once you just let that thing take you where it wants to take you, And what Solomon is saying is wisdom is like a goad because it provokes you to action. It provokes you because any of us can become lazy in our spiritual life, right? Any of us. And when you open the Bible, when you go to your small group, when you come to church on Sunday morning, you're going to hear a word from God. When you get up in the morning and crack the Bible open, it's going to be the goad, and it might hurt. Something that I say, you know, how many times do people come up to me and say, it was like you were talking to me this morning? And that's what the Bible does. It's not what Niall does. It's what the Bible does. It, it can poke you. And, and, and nobody comes up to me and says, I'm mad at what you said. Fortunately, they don't do that. But I imagine some people do walk in here a little bit out of shape about what's being said. Because if you're going to preach the Bible, and if the Bible's a goad, it's going to hurt a little bit. It's going to poke a little bit. But that's good because it's going to keep you on the right track if you let it guide you. There will be a little bit of pain, perhaps. So, would you kind of look at the Bible as this book that's not just touchy-feely, not just love, 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 but is also something that might get a stronger reaction out of you? Maybe even a negative one where you have to double-check your own heart to make sure you're not just getting offended by what God has said. It's a goad. If you don't read it, then you can be the ox that just goes whatever way you want. Better stay out of church, too, because this could hurt. Not that I intend it to, but that God intends it to. Okay? So wisdom is like a goad. It's also like a nail. That's the second part of that verse. Next prop. Okay. So I was looking around the church for a good prop for nails. I thought I'm just, I could hold up nails, but I thought, this is pretty cool. This is pretty cool. I have no idea what this is used for, but it was in the furnace room. Someone could tell me, have you been looking for this this week? I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, yeah, somebody was. Okay. Um, I love it. And I love it because I didn't plan this. I just saw it, and it was like, whoa, that's pretty cool. Um, you notice how all these nails are kind of driven in the same direction, except that one? That's me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, Solomon says, wisdom is like a well-driven nail. It's, it's firmly fixed. This is for you construction guys, by the way. You know who you are. Um, this is for you. It, it, it's firmly fixed. It's going in the right direction, the right way. It's going to hold things together. In fact, you could hang your coat on it. And some, some commentators say perhaps Solomon had in mind a nail in a wall that you could hang your cloak on. Perhaps that was what he was referring to. 
Are you the kind of person that counts on the Bible to, to hang your life on, your actions, the way you decide things? When you have a difficult decision to make, do you try to figure it out first or do you open your Bible and start praying for a word from the Lord? Because you can hang things on the wisdom of Scripture. The other thing I thought about this as I saw the nail that was bent was, do you know how to recognize counterfeit wisdom? You know, worldly wisdom? The, the, the popular wisdom of the day? A lot of people think that in our society, as we get more technologically advanced, we're getting smarter, we know more about the universe, we know about how children are formed in the womb. I was thinking about that the other day when I was studying Ecclesiastes, and uh, Solomon says, you don't know how a baby's formed in the womb. And I thought, yeah, we do. We, we, we know how that works. Um, but that doesn't take away from the point that we don't understand the working of God all the time, just like we don't know how babies are formed. Do you know how to recognize this? If society says we're getting smarter and better, more technologically advanced, life is getting better for us, are you willing to say, actually, no, it's not? Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 that there's nothing new under the sun. You're dealing with the same old sins from the same old Satan. He's been there from the beginning. Jesus says he's a father of lies. We deal with the same old stuff. We've just invented new ways to do it. Can you recognize counterfeit nails? Because the only way you're going to is by being in the Bible. That's the only way for you. That's the only way. And if you start hanging your life on this, you'll see things start to fall apart. Somewhere in your life, you'll see things start to fall apart. Hang your Bible on a well-driven, hang your life on a well-driven nail, and you'll still have difficult things, things that won't go right. But you'll find that you can navigate them with Christ. Give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. Get me through this with Jesus. It's like a well-driven nail. All right, um, use this just a little longer. Here we go, next verse. Uh, let's see, where are we at? Oh, verse 11, end of verse 11. Four words, given by one shepherd. Where did the goad come from? Where did the nail come from? They're given by one shepherd. Now, you have to understand when you see the word shepherd, that was a metaphor for a ruler. Political ruler, religious ruler. We talked about this a couple of Christmases ago, I think. Shepherding imagery is, is that of rulers. Kings are shepherds back then. Priests were shepherds. They take care of people. And that analogy went far and wide. And so Solomon says, actually, words of truth, words of wisdom, goads and nails come from one Shepherd, one singular shepherd. They don't come from David and Asaph and the other people that wrote the Psalms. They don't come from just Moses. They don't come from Solomon. They actually come from one singular shepherd. And we know who that shepherd is. You could say God. That's a good Sunday school answer. I go further and say, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. This is one of the strongest 
claims you will read in the Bible that claims divine authorship. You read Ecclesiastes and understand it's from Jesus Christ himself. He is the singular shepherd. You can take these words to the bank. If they're hard, if they're difficult, if you don't like them, struggle with it. Would you work hard to understand hard words? Would you do that? Would you trust Ecclesiastes in its wisdom? Would you trust the Bible in its wisdom? This is from God to you, given by one shepherd. Yes, Solomon searched for the right words. Ultimately, Jesus gave him the right ones to say. That's exactly what he's saying here. Trust it. Okay, um, now that I've said all I wanted to say about that, Let's get to the conclusion of the book. This is it. This is the end. Before we do it, a little breather. I've got a few more slides I want to show you. Um, we've talked about the meaning of life this whole summer. Um, and here Solomon is just going to say it as bluntly as he can. Let me give you four uh, humorous attempts at the meaning of life. Here we go. The meaning of life. You're welcome. You get it? It's not there. Okay. All right. Next one. Next one. Okay. Keep going. The true meaning of life. Eat, avoid bad people, jump to the next level. That was my childhood right there. I'm telling you. That was my childhood. Pac-Man was it. Okay. Next one. Oh, for the sci-fi fans amongst us. Spock ponders the meaning of life and makes a disturbing discovery. It doesn't seem logical, but what if the hokey pokey is what it's all about? Maybe. And then one more time, 42, the meaning of life. Uh, if you're a sci-fi fan, you understand that too. If you don't, don't worry about it. It's okay. It's okay. All right. Now Solomon wants to say, here is the meaning of life. Verse 13. Now that all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Two things. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Two things we want to close this series with. Fear God and keep his commandments. Let's take the first one first. That clock says 920. I think I've got 45 minutes left. My watch says different, so we'll go with my watch. Okay, fear God, <laughs> right? Um, if you're in my small group this summer, you're totally prepared for this, right? You should come up and preach this for me, all right? You should. Uh, we talked about this this summer uh, while watching a Francis Chan video, and we had an awesome time thinking about how we really fear God because this is what you usually hear fear God means. Are you ready? Fear God means respect him. Respect him. Because, you know, that makes perfect sense with Matthew 10, 28, when Jesus says, uh, don't fear the one that can destroy the body but can't destroy the soul. Rather, he says, fear the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. That's what Jesus said. Don't be respectful of the one who can destroy your body, but be respectful of the one who can destroy your body and soul in hell. Does that work? Not so well. Not so well. He's not talking about respect, is he? He's talking about fear. Scared. Don't, 
don't, don't be scared of the one who could take your life. Don't be scared of the terrorist. Don't be scared of the Roman emperor. Don't be scared because they could kill your body. Instead, again, correlation, if you're studying the verse, you're going, A has to relate to B here. Instead, fear the one who could destroy your soul and body in hell. God is a hugely powerful God. Do you understand that when you see him, more than likely you're going to be terrified? Do you think you're going to have a different response than Isaiah did when he was standing before the Lord and he said, Woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. Do you think you're going to go up then and slap him on the back and say, Good to see you, God? I mean, I'm looking forward to the hug of Jesus. Don't get me wrong. I'm looking forward to that. But my impression is the first time I see him, I'm going to fall over. Do you think you're going to do better? If you do, perhaps you don't know God as well as you should. John in Revelation chapter 1, by the way, we're getting back to Revelation. We're going to conclude it this fall. Hallelujah, right? Um, promise. We're going to, we're going to finish it off. Um, but Revelation chapter 1, John hears a voice behind him. and He turns and he sees Jesus and he's describing. How about we read it? Would you, would you go there? Last book of the Bible. You might as well see it. Revelation chapter 1. Uh, last book of the Bible. Verse 12. Revelation 1 verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. Those stand for the church, by the way, the different churches John's writing to. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And how hot is the sun? We've talked about that. You've got the sun shining on you, except it's like right in front of you. And I'm sure you're going to say, Awesome. I just love that. No, you're probably going to do what John did, even though John knows Jesus, and he sees him in all of his glory. Verse 17, I saw him and I fell at his feet as though dead. As though dead. Count on it. When you experience God like that for the first time, you probably aren't going to be able to stay on your feet. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. Don't fear. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. How is it that Jesus can reassure us when we see him for who he is in all of his glory and we're terrified? Why is it that he can put his hand on us and say, but don't be afraid. I know, I know I look like nothing you've ever seen before, but don't be afraid because he holds the keys to death in Hades and you're not going to be judged for your sin if you trusted in him, so you're not going to hell. This guy loves you. He died for you. No fear, uh, right? Uh, we also know that perfect love casts out fear. He loves you. Don't be afraid. He loves you. That hand is putting on you 
for an embrace not to send you to punishment and torment forever. It's not doing that. It is if you haven't accepted his forgiveness. Then you should be scared. But if you've accepted Jesus' forgiveness on the cross, it will go well with you. So we fear God. We know how powerful he is. We know his awesomeness. We know that there's no one like him. And that fear transitions to, but you love me? You've accepted me? You should have sent me to hell for what I did, but you still want to have a relationship with me? Oh, I respect you. I stand in awe of you. I fear you. You're my Savior. I think fear transitions to love. And you don't forget how awesome and amazing God is, but fear leads us into a beautiful place in relationship with Christ. Let's face it. Some of us have accepted Christ because we were scared to go to hell. And rightly so. At some point, though, you realize the amazing thing is not just I don't get to go to hell, it's also because he loves me enough that he would die for me. Fear God. Last word, keep his commandments. Keep his commandments. Problem being that we don't do so well keeping his commandments. You've probably done some things this week you, didn't, you wish you didn't do. You've said some things. You've thought some things. John 14 says, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. I'm not advocating a work spirituality. We don't earn our way to heaven. None of you are getting there by works, people. I'm not getting there by works. It's only faith. It's only believing that Christ died for me. But once you believed, now, faith without works is dead. Now I want to serve him. Now I want to obey his commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments, and I will send the helper. That's the next verse in John 14. I'll send the helper. That's the Holy Spirit. Some of your translations say, I'll send the counselor. I think some of them say that. Not the best way to say it. The word is actually helper. He will help you. He has power. He will help you obey all that Christ has obeyed you to do, uh, commanded you to do. He will help you obey. He is the helper. So for any of you here that haven't come to Jesus yet, and you're saying, I'm waiting to get my act together, then I'll come to Jesus. Never happen. It will never happen. You don't have the helper in your life yet. You come to Jesus and say, I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. Please forgive me. And then he saves you. And then he sends the helper to help you obey him. You still fail. I still do. But he's there. Fear God. Keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. Sounds a little bit like the Westminster Shorter Catechism, doesn't it? So you have it in your notes in front of you. We'll put it up here. What is the chief end of man? What's the point of all this? And I wonder if the writers of that catechism had Ecclesiastes chapter 12 in their mind. Because they say man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him together. I glorify Him by keeping His commandments. 
I glorify him by living for him, by worshiping him 24-7, not just in song, but in everything I do in my life. And I want to enjoy a relationship with him forever. Isn't that what the fear of the Lord leads to? I fear you. I want to be in a right relationship with you because you could send me to hell, but you want to know me personally. You know my name. How is it that you know my name out of the billions of people? How do you know me? I get to enjoy this God forever. It starts with fear, transitions into other beautiful things, and I get to be with him. I get to be with him. If you don't know him, would you consider giving your life to him this morning? I'd love to talk to you. I'll, I'll, we'll hold off on the baptisms until that happens. I mean, let's talk. Let's talk if we need to. Let's pray. Worship team, would you come up? Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can count as reliable all the words of Ecclesiastes as coming from one shepherd, one guide who's here to navigate our life for us. If we would just listen, if we would just follow, if we would just apply what we know, Help us treat our Bibles like that. For those here that haven't cracked their Bible open in quite a while, unless they're in this room right here, I pray you'd encourage them to spend time with you, to receive words of life from you. I pray for those here that have been confused so long on why you put them on earth. May they see that meaning in life is found in you. May they stop pursuing the bent nails of worldly wisdom that we can't hang our life on and yet we want to because everybody talks like this is the way it is. May we go back to your truth. And may we see that it's firmly fixed forever and ever and ever. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.